<coughs> Exodus chapter 23. We are rapidly coming to the end of the book of the covenant. As I said, this is our last Exodus sermon for the month. Uh, next week we're at the Legacy, and then the two Sundays after that we'll do Christmas sermons morning and evening, and then George Corrales will be here on New Year's Day. So we'll get back to Exodus on the second Sunday of January. Exodus 23, starting at verse 10. Six years you shall sow your land and gather in its produce, but the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow, that the poor of your people may eat, and what they leave the beasts of the field may eat. In like manner you shall do with your vineyard and your olive grove. Six days you shall do your work, and on the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox and your donkey may rest, and the son of your maidservant and the stranger may be refreshed. In all that I have said to you, be circumspect, and make no mention of the name of other gods, nor let it be heard from your mouth. Three times a year you shall keep a feast to me in the year. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. You shall eat unleavened bread seven days as I commanded you, at the time appointed in the month of Abib, for in it you came out of Egypt. None shall appear before me empty. And the feast of harvest, the first fruits of your labors, which you have sown in the field, and the feast of ingathering, which is at the end of the year, when you have gathered in the fruit of your labors from the field. Three times in the year all your males shall appear before the Lord Yahweh. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with leavened bread, nor shall the fat of my sacrifice remain until morning. The first of the first fruits of your land you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Let's pray. Father, help us to understand your word. This ritual material can seem very foreign and strange to us. Open up our hearts by your Spirit that we might understand your word, that we might see who you are, that we might recognize these holidays for what they are, tools for teaching your people about yourself. Lord, we praise you for your heart, for the widow and the stranger and the son of the maidservant, that you care for the bunnies and the wild animals in the field. Lord, help us to be like you. We pray that you would transform us to be like you by the application of your word to us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, these holidays are different for us. We, uh, we have probably heard of them, especially by the various names that I have listed on the back of the bulletin. But they don't intuitively strike a chord with your typical modern American Christian. Christ fulfilled the Jewish holidays. We no longer have to celebrate Passover. We no longer, three times a year, have to all appear before the Lord our God. So, what do we learn here? Well, we learn about ritual holiness. That's what this passage is about. And ritual holiness, in turn, teaches us about moral holiness. Holiness, what that looks like to obey God morally. The point, holy people give a seventh of their time to God. Holy people celebrate holidays as God's people. 
<coughs> the Lord starts with the great holiday, the one that comes not just by teaching here, but by creation, the Sabbath day. Six years you shall sow your land, but the seventh year let it rest. Six days you shall do your work, on the seventh day you shall rest. We've seen this pattern before at great length when we talked about the fourth commandment. The pattern, the divine pattern, six on, one off. Six on, one off, or six on and the seventh day off. That's how God works his work week. He created six days, took the seventh day off. That's how he tells us to work our work week. And he applies it here not just to the week, but to the year. The point is not which day or which year the pattern starts in. The point is the pattern. Six on, one off, six on, one off. That is the moral thing that's required here. God doesn't say, make sure you start this this year. Right, it's talking about when you come into the land. Six years you shall sow your land. The seventh year, let it rest. They're not planting crops at Mount Sinai. This command is for when they come into the land and live a settled existence there. The Sabbath commandment teaches us about our God. What is he like? Well, he says what he's like. He wants the needy to have a chance that the poor of the people may eat. Those who don't own land in the seventh year get to act like they do own land. They can go out and harvest whatever grows there. And well-tended land will produce quite a bit, even in the off year. I remember having a conversation quite a few years ago now with an olive farmer in California. He had a gigantic olive picking machine that he was showing to us. And this thing was a large tractor with a tunnel right through the middle. The tunnel was about 14 feet tall or so. They grew their olives as little bushes, short dwarf trees. They put all the olive trees right in a row, and this machine was big enough to drive right over the whole row of olive trees. It had two spindles on the side with long rubber fingers, and those spun, beat the olive trees as it drove past, knocked all the olives out of the trees, and they all fell down onto conveyor belts, and this thing collected the olives as it drove through the field. A pretty magnificent piece of work. Well, I asked how much of the produce, how many, what percentage of the olives does this get? And the fellow said, well, it gets about 88 to 94 percent, but usually never over, over 90. You know, tops out at around 88 most of the time. I said, well, that's pretty good. What can a human picker do if you had a man pick the olive tree? How much would he get? Oh, he'd get the same amount or less. So said the olive picker machine owner. Maybe he wanted me to think that his machine was just as good as a human picker. But this is what the Lord is talking about. The poor have a chance to eat. What happens to the 10% of the olives that are left in the field? Well, the Lord knows about those 10%, and he says, leave them for the poor. Now, it doesn't mention that the corner of the field thing in this passage. That's in Deuteronomy, I think, where God says, don't reap the corners of your field that the poor may eat. But in the seventh year, olive trees and apple trees, vineyards and orchards continue to produce fruit, even if not tended. And the Lord says here, leave it. Don't make the effort 
to go out and intensively cultivate water, weed, feed. Just let it rest. And the poor get to go out and enjoy that. Not just the poor, but he adds that the beasts of the field may eat. God cares about the deer. God cares about the bunnies. God cares about the wild animals of the field. These things matter to him. We look out at the field and we say, that's my field. That's for me. I cultivate that. I work that. I eat the fruit from that. God says, six days, it's yours. Six years, it's yours. The seventh year, it's mine. I want to remind you who owns the land. I want to remind you, if you don't own the land, that your God is generous. And that even if you're not a landowner, you can go out and eat. You can go out and harvest. God cares. He wants the needy to have a chance. He also wants the needy to work. He doesn't say in the seventh year, harvest your field and give all the food away. He says, let the people who want it harvest your field. Let the poor come and eat. The people weren't told to take the year off to increase their laziness but to increase their faith. What more? There is no more definitive way of saying, God, I trust you, than to say, I believe that you said you will feed me for a whole year. Not even the most generous nations, the Nordic nations, for instance, have a paternity leave policy or a parental leave policy where together the mom and dad can take off 52 weeks after the birth of a baby. That's split between the two parents. But God says both parents get to take 52 weeks off. Take the whole year off. On me, I will feed you. God made us to work. He made us to guard. He also made us to rest. Now we don't know whether Israel ever tried this sabbatical year thing. There's no record of it actually being implemented anywhere in Scripture. But it's a fascinating idea, and certainly its moral dimension is clear. Put your faith in God. Yes, work. Yes, provide for yourself. But in the seventh year, let it go. Open your hands and let all that stuff go. God will take care of you. In our circles, there's this fashionable thing of giving a pastor... Three or four months off during his seventh year of ministry, they call it a sabbatical. Say, you need a break. You've worked hard. Well, God doesn't give three or four months off. He gives a whole year off, and he doesn't just give it to special occupations. He gives it to what the vast majority of everybody was in that era, a subsistence farmer. Take the year off. Everybody. The day is not just for you. People for every class and status, right? If you're a poor person and don't own any land, don't have anything to farm, the sabbatical year looks very different for you too. You're not working as a day laborer for someone who owns the land. You get to go out and keep whatever you can harvest that year. You become wealthy, as it were, in the seventh year. So the Sabbath day is very similar. The Sabbath day is a weekly reminder that God provides. A weekly way of saying, God, I trust you. I can stop striving. I can quit worrying about my worldly business and cares. Today, 
I can rest. On the seventh day, you shall rest. And again, God puts it specifically in terms of you as the householder, you as the landowner, need to be on the hook for those under your charge. Your ox and your donkey may rest. The son of your maidservant may rest. And the stranger may be refreshed. Animals, get the day off. Don't work your animals into the ground. Let the son of your maidservant, the slave born in your house, he gets the day off. You're not allowed to say, slave, get out there and work. God says, no. Slave gets the day off. And even the stranger who's visiting... He gets the day off. Um, one of the men in our church in California was product engineer for Apple, worked on iPhones, traveled to China all the time for the manufacturing process. Well, he was a Sabbatarian. And he said on the first of these trips, I will not work on Sundays. I'm taking the day off. And his manager said, you can't do that. And he said, well, I'm going to. You can fire me if you want, but I'm not working. Even though we're in China, I'm taking the day off. Well, soon, the manager decided he would deal with that by giving the entire team that this guy worked on Sundays off. The man became the most popular man on the team. <laughs> he had gotten everybody the day off. Well, that's who Moses is, right? He's the guy who's getting everybody the day off. Take the day off. And the people who work for you take the day off. And the animals who work for you take the day off. And the stranger who's visiting you, don't make him work. He takes the day off. God is giving to you. That's what the Sabbath means. He's giving you the most precious thing in the world, time. And he's giving you time to stop worrying about your everyday concerns, about your daily work, about your daily problems, your bills, your needs, your shopping list. He's giving you time to spend with Him and to just rest. The day is not just for the rich, not just for the landowner. People of every class and status, rich and poor, can rest. Well, verse 13 then, what does that have to do with anything? Make no mention of the names of other gods. How does that relate to the Sabbath year or to the feasts, the answer, I think, is the context. What is the holiday for? Whether you're talking about the Sabbath day, the Sabbath year, the pilgrimage feasts, those holidays are for serving God, not for serving other gods. Just because you're celebrating doesn't mean you should quit obeying. Just because the ordinary routine is different, it's a Sabbath day, it's a Sabbath year, I'm not doing my ordinary work. The devil has a field day with holidays. We can certainly see it with Christmas and the ways that that holiday is transformed by the world into something evil and pagan and encouraging people to spend money they don't have, to buy things they don't want, to impress people they don't even like. That old statement, well, Christmas certainly partakes in its fair share of that. And holidays, we also tend to bring out our idolatrous conceptions of family. We're going to have the perfect get-together. You all are going to be great. And you're, going to be in, and you're going to enjoy it. You're going to like the food. You're going to celebrate the way I envision it or else. Again, God says, stop worshiping other gods with your holidays. Don't mention other gods, whether that's the God of commercialism, the almighty dollar, whether it's the God of family perfection. 
or the laziness God. God says rest, but he doesn't say be idle, do nothing. Just let the world go by while you sit in your hammock. You know, worship is work. We can skip worship, or we can worship in a half-hearted, lazy way. Oh, I'll give God whatever's left over, right? You can think about somebody celebrating the holiday the entire day, and then at the end say, oh, everybody's dog-tired. I guess we should probably remember God at this point. Maybe give him a few half-asleep prayers. That would probably be the right thing to do. Right. We can break the Sabbath, we can violate the holiday without ever touching a power tool or opening our Windows account and starting to write sermons or whatever your job is. Holidays that get bent toward Mammon or Baal or Aphrodite or any false god that's out there are holidays on which we failed to obey God like we were supposed to. Holidays that we took from being holy days and turned into unholy days. That's why God says, don't even mention the names of other gods. Don't let the holiday be corrupted by idolatry. People in covenant with God, this is the book of the covenant, people in covenant with God celebrate in a way that reflects that reality. If you are in covenant with God, you do the covenant thing. You obey God even on holidays. Well, Moses drops the names of three feasts. He does not describe these feasts in any great detail in this passage. The three feasts are known by a number of different names. They're called unleavened bread, harvest, and ingathering. In this passage, you can see the festival of unleavened bread is also known as Passover. I have that noted in the bulletin. Eat unleavened bread seven days as when you came out of Egypt. It's the feast that celebrates God's deliverance. It's the feast that corresponds to Easter in the contemporary church calendar. God brought his people out of Egypt at Passover. Jesus ate the last supper at Passover, was crucified at Passover, and was raised from the dead three days later. So Good Friday is on the same day as Passover. That's one feast. The second feast is the Feast of Harvest, also known as the first Feast of First Fruits or the Feast of Weeks, because it was seven weeks after the Feast of Passover, or Pentecost, because seven weeks is 49 days, and the Greek word for 50 is Pentecanta, which became Pentecost. So that feast, well, we celebrate it today as the day when God poured out the Holy Spirit on his people, which we read about in Acts 2. Moses just says, this is the first fruits of your labors which you have sown in the field. Celebrate that. You've finally gotten the harvest. We read in James this morning about the farmer who patiently waits. When you get those first fruits, you celebrate. And you celebrate with this feast of harvest. It's finally the feast of ingathering, so-called here in the text. At the end of the year, also known as the Feast of Tabernacles, which in Hebrew is Sukkot, or in English is booths, celebrated by moving out of your house and living in a little shack in the back garden for a week to remember that you were a desert wanderer. You didn't always have this house. You didn't always have a settled lifestyle. That's what the Feast of Booths is about, when you've gathered in the fruit of your labors from the field. So, three times in the year, all your males shall appear 
before the Lord God. Moses gives just basically four principles how to celebrate these holidays. The first then is come to God. A holiday has to be celebrated in the presence of God. That's what worship is about. We come into the presence of the living God. The holidays of our culture should be celebrated in this way. And if you come to a holiday of your culture that you can't celebrate in the presence of God, right? I'm looking at Halloween, don't celebrate that holiday. If the holiday is about something ungodly, something that you cannot in good conscience celebrate before God, it's a sign to you that you shouldn't celebrate it. But the holidays of our culture, by and large, can be celebrated in the presence of God. We have, what, Martin Luther King Jr. Day, Valentine's Day, St. Patrick's Day, and then we have Easter, and then Labor Day, or Memorial Day, Fourth of July, Labor Day, Thanksgiving, Christmas, going through the year, these holidays generally have a positive aspect that we can celebrate in the presence of God. We don't have to use the calendar that God gave Moses. We're free to use the holiday calendar that's been worked out in our society. But we don't celebrate the same way as the world does. We don't use these holidays to worship false gods. We use them to worship and give thanks to the true God. We also celebrate according to the law of God. Verse 18. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with leavened bread, nor shall the fat of my sacrifice remain till morning. Now these are ceremonial regulations. We don't offer sacrifices to God anymore. But what's the point? The overall point is celebrate according to God's law. God continues to tell you how to celebrate even though it's a holiday. Holidays are not some kind of law-free zone. Too much ham will make you fat, even if it is Christmas. Too much beer will make you drunk, even if it is St. Patty's. Illegal fireworks are still illegal, even though it's the 4th of July. Holidays are not a law-free zone. So when you celebrate, keep the law. Keep the law of God. Keep the law of the land. Give your best to God. The first of the first fruits of your land you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. When you're celebrating the beginning of the harvest, God has this as a rule. The first ripe raspberry you pick, the first barley head that you harvest, you don't pop that in your mouth and say, oh, I'm so tired of eating the stuff I stored from last year. You say, this belongs to God. Like the best part of the holiday belongs to God. I mentioned this. Don't celebrate the holiday in the secular ways, exhausting yourself, and then at the end say, oh, I guess I should remember my creator. The truth that God wants the first fruits is the truth that we need to give the best part of our day to him, not the worst. And this is particularly true when our culture's holidays take place on the Lord's Day. Which is the bigger holiday? Fourth of July or Sunday? St. Patrick's Day or Sunday? Christmas or Sunday, right? The churches that cancel services when December 25th is on a Sunday so that the church staff can spend time with their families have this exactly backwards. They, they send a clear message that the holiday of our culture is more important than the holiday of the living God. That's not what we learn from this. The first of the first fruits 
bring to the house of the Lord. Don't bring the first of the first fruits into your own house for your family to celebrate with. You take it to God and you say, Lord, this is yours. You gave me this. I give it back to you. Finally, we have this odd command, don't boil a young goat in its mother's milk. This command appears three times in the Pentateuch. No one is exactly sure why, other than that this is obviously a sick and twisted thing to do. The contemporary Judaism with its kosher, bases its kosher regulations on this command to forbid cheeseburgers. You cannot eat meat and milk products together, according to them, and based on this command. I don't think that's what the Lord is trying to say. The bottom line, as best as we can tell, is that it's saying, don't take the thing intended for life, the milk of a mother, and twist it into death. Don't make your holidays, I would say, a soul-sucking occasion. A holiday is supposed to give life. A holiday that brings death is a violation of this command. When someone celebrates a holiday or the Lord's Day with you, will they come away refreshed, like Paul with Philemon, or drained? Will they have come into God's presence and seen his glory and been strengthened by it? Or will they be worn to a frazzle and angry? Right? Not that marathon holiday celebrations are wrong, but the point is, if you're mixing life and death, look out. Taking something intended to give life and using it to bring death, you're in trouble. So, a brief brief lesson. Holidays with God. Remember the Sabbath day. Look at the pilgrimage feasts. Celebrate your holidays in the presence of God, according to the law of God, by giving your best to God without twisting life into death. Remembering, God did the opposite. He took death and turned it into life at Passover when the animal was slain and the lamb's blood was painted on the doors. And again at Passover when Christ was crucified, God took death and from it brought life. That's the biggest holiday of all. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us to celebrate with you We thank you for the opportunity to have holidays. Lord, we pray that you would help us to live as covenant people on every holiday. To be Christians, not just at an overtly Christian holiday like St. Patrick's, but to be Christians on Labor Day, and to be Christians on Valentine's Day, and to be Christians on Martin Luther King Jr. Day, and every other day that our culture sets aside for celebration. Father, help us to celebrate as people who are in your presence, keeping your law, giving their best to you. Lord, we praise you for your word, whose entrance gives